We've been uh, speaking about the Ketuvah um, clause of Benin Dichrin that says that uh, if a, a wife uh, dies first, then, uh, well, she can't collect the Ketuvah because she died, but instead the payment of the Ketuvah goes to her male sons, the male sons that she has with this husband. And the reason why the rabbis instituted this is so that the father of the bride will give a big dowry, knowing that it will remain in his family, uh, that it will go to his grandsons. So now we have a fantastic story about this. Rapapa his, was marrying off his son to the daughter of Abba Sura'a. And so Rapapa went to Abba Sura'a's house to write the Ketubah and also to negotiate the terms. Shama Yehuda bar Meremar, a man named Yehuda bar Meremar, who uh, seems to be, have been an important person. He was the family of, from the family of the exilarch. He heard that a papa was coming to town. Nafakata it hazele. So he went out to see Rav Papa. So they're walking along the way, and he gets a chance to uh, to, to greet a papa. And then when they get to the opening of the house of Abba Sura'a, the father of the bride, so uh, Abba, uh, so Yehuda Bar Meremar uh, says, "Okay, goodbye. I'm going to leave you now, and because you're going to go and do your business in there." The papa says, "No, come in with me. I want you to join me." While I negotiate the terms of the uh, of the marriage, Papa saw that did not want to go. He was <laughs> making up all kinds of excuses. I gotta go. I have an appointment. He didn't want to. Amale, my datech. So Papa says, what, what do you think? How come you don't want to go? Mishum damale, Shemuel, Rabbi Yehuda. Is it because of what Shemuel told his student, Rabbi Yehuda? Shinena, sharp one. That was his nickname. La teve be abure, achsanta, afilu mebera, bisha, libera, taba. He gave him advice. Do not be involved in inheritances. Even if it's to shift something, uh, some some of the inheritance from a bad son to a good son. In other words, you should always let the inheritance follow the normal course that all the sons divide equally. And don't involve yourself in any case where the father wants to give more to one and more to the other. And you're going to have to adjudicate it or be a witness to it. Don't get involved in such a thing. Even if the father's give, taking away from uh, the bad son and giving more to the good son. Because you never know what children they're going to have. Maybe the bad son's going to have good children and the good son's going to have bad children. And then you'll be, they'll say it's your fault that they have more money and you have more money and it just causes fights. Don't get involved in it. And all the more so, don't get involved in, in moving around, changing an inheritance so that the, son, the, uh, the, the money goes from the sons to the daughters instead. Uh, so a lot of times the father wants to give to the daughter uh, um, and, um, and uh, that's against the normal policy. Don't get involved in such things. So is that what, you're ha- what you have in mind? So well, how would that be relevant? Here, the, we, what we saw is that the dowry amount that a father should give to his daughter, the rabbi said, should be uh, similar, equivalent to what his sons will eventually inherit. We said that that's about a tenth of all his property. And so really, the dowry is, in a way, 
uh, a way to siphon off money from the inheritance that would go to the sons, and instead it will go to the daughter. Now, it doesn't go to the daughter directly. It goes into the marriage of the daughter with the husband, and the husband will be able to use that property, and the couple will use those things. But eventually, when she dies, his grandsons will inherit inherit it. So uh, effectively, the daughter and then her sons are inheriting a share along and taking away that share from the sons. So that papa is saying, is that what is that your problem? Uh, because you don't want to be involved in dividing up inheritances against the normal procedure. But but this itself is a takana that the rabbi said, whereas we saw yesterday that statement that we want to make sure that fathers will give big dowries and they'll give a bigger dowry if they know that's going to remain in the family. So don't, you know, you're worried about what Rav Yehuda said. The rabbis themselves said that this is a good thing to do. Uh, okay, Amar Abba Yehuda Bar Meremad responds, Yes, it's true. When the Bishma Mariachai said it's a good idea for a father to give a big dowry, that's we're talking about when he wants to give it himself. La suye name, but to make force him to do it, that is uh, that the rabbis didn't say. And Yehuda Bar Meremad, because he's an important person, he felt that by joining Rav Papa in the negotiations, just his presence is going to uh, put pressure on the father of the bride to show off that he's giving more. And so he said, I don't want to be part of that. The papa said, I didn't tell you to, to come in and force him to do that. Just come in and, and sit next to me. Just be my friend here. So, Avasiyeh. Uh, uh, Right, did I tell you to enter and force him? I only want you to enter with me and don't do anything. That's what I meant. said, For me, even my presence is going to be putting undue pressure on the father of the bride. Even if I don't tell him, hey, you know, it's a good idea to give a big dowry. Just my presence, just being there, he's going to feel pressure to give uh, to give one. So Yudamir Ben-Mas still didn't want to go, and we see why. He was against this whole idea. I mean, it's fine if a father of the bride wants to give, that's great. And, you know, the rabbis made a takana that the sons will inherit so that he will give a, a give one. But there's, uh, there's an oppo- opposite side, which is that he's taking away uh, money that would go to the sons, that the sons would inherit, and they'll be, feel a grudge about that. And so he just doesn't want, not want to get involved. But nevertheless, forced him to come. You got to come with me. Pulled him in, and he sat next to him. He sat there silently. He didn't want to give any facial expressions, any hint that he's putting any pressure but the father of the bride, Abasura, uh, he said he thought it looked like Yudamaram was angry because he was making no expression. He wasn't smiling. He looked like he was angry. So he looked at him and says, Oh, I guess that's pressure. He wants me to give a big dowry. So the father of the bride wrote all of his possessions he gave as a dowry. But Yudamaram still was not smiling. So he says, Oh, you're still not satisfied? I gave everything. Right? But he swears by my master. I gave 
uh, um, I have nothing left for myself. I have nothing left to give. You know, how come you're still angry? And Yodam Adamara says, no, no, I was not angry. If you would have asked me, if it was up for me or up to me, even that which you wrote is not good. I wish you wrote less. All right, there's no need. I wish you didn't write anything. Uh, taking away from the sun. So it's not for me. I, I, I was not, this is not an expression of anger on my part that you weren't giving enough. So the father of the bride said, okay, great. Well, then I'll change my mind and I'll take it back and I'll, uh, uh, I'll, uh, let's renegotiate. Um, says, no, I also am not telling you that you should be a person who's a flip-flopper and now change your mind now that you negotiated and agreed to it, uh, even though that's technically they weren't married yet, so he could change his mind, but this is not proper. Now that you have uh, given your agreement to give away all your property, I, uh, uh, don't blame it on me and uh, change your mind. Okay, so really fantastic story that uh, brings to life a lot of the, the, the tensions and arguments and considerations that were involved in uh, such negotiations and uh, uh, some of the moral considerations of the different parties that we may not even realize that the sons then will, um, you know, not be, be resentful at, the, at their sister, at their nephews, and all that that the rabbis had to take into consideration. Okay, Ba'aminet Av Yemar Sabah Nachman, we have a question. If a someone, a woman, sells her ketubah to her husband, uh, meaning usually if you don't sell the ketubah, then when he dies or they're divorced, then she'll collect the ketubah. Um, but that would be in many years, and it could be she dies first and she'll never get it. So if she's strapped for cash and she needs, she wants to buy something, what she could do is, let's say the ketubah is for 200 zoos, she could say, listen, I, it's worth it for me um, to give me 50 zoos now, and then you don't have to pay the ketubah. So she can tell that to her husband, and he'll pay their 50 now, and then he doesn't have to pay the ketubah later on. So that's a valid agreement. The question is, if she does agree to that, then does that nullify the ketubah altogether? What about the other stipulations in it? Like the fact that if she dies uh, first, then, and then uh, uh, she dies first, and eventually he dies, then the inheritance will go to the sons first. The ketubah payout will go to their sons, the banin dechrin. Does that, so when she sells her ketubah, does she sell the right to the banin dechrin, uh, and that doesn't need to get paid? Or she only sold her own right to collect the ketubah should they get divorced, but she did not sell the right for her sons to inherit. That's a good question. Rava says, why are you asking about a case of her selling? Why don't you ask about a case of her foregoing for free? She's uh, in a good mood and she says, listen, I, I don't, you don't have to give me a ketubah. I forego my rights to the ketubah. Why don't you ask that question? If she foregoes her rights, does she also forego the rights of her sons to collect? Rav Yamad, who asked the original question, responds to Rava and says, Rav 
So he answers, I was asking the better question. If someone who sells her, 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 her rights to the ketubah, I have a question there. That is a good question because even though you might say the need for money is what forced her. She obviously is in some kind of financial need that would force her to sell her ketubah. She is in debt or she really has to pay for something. And what does it feel like to be under financial pressure? It's like being struck with a hundred strikes from a hammer, right? When someone feels financial pressure constantly, like I have to pay, what am I going to do? So in that case, she really doesn't want to give up her ketubah. She's forced to do it because of the financial pressure. So in that case, we would assume she's giving up as little as possible. So there, it makes sense to say that she may not want to uh, give up her children, her son's right to collect the ketubah. So there, it makes sense uh, to ask such a question. Maybe she does, maybe she, w- maybe she wouldn't. But there's no need to ask if she uh, willingly forgoes the ketubah, because there, she's no, no one's pressuring her to do it, to do that. She's like, no, I don't need it. I don't care about it. If she's doing it willingly, then for sure she's giving up all of the rights to the ketubah, including the, the rights of the sons to inherit. So he says, that's why he didn't ask that question. The case where she forgoes, uh, we can assume that she forgoes also the rights of the son to collect. Amarava Peshitali. So Rava, who asked that question, he seems to have accepted uh, the answer of Ravi Amad, and now Rava has at least a partial answer. He says, the following I can uh, are, are simple to me, that this is the obvious answer. If a woman sells the right for a ketubah to a third party, which is also a valid thing to do, um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, sometimes today, if uh, someone re- is, re- is due to receive a payout from a lawsuit or something, but it's not going to come for a long time and there's some chance it might not come so she can either buy insurance or she can sell to someone the right to collect that payout because she'd rather have less in her hands now than possibly more but later and only a chance that she'll get it so so too she can sell the rights to her kitubah to another party and that then eventually if they get divorced or he dies the payout will be to the third party for the 200 zoos and she'll get 50 zoos now for example so Rava says, in that case, it's simple to me. Obviously, she's under financial pressure because she needs the cash now. So she gave up as little as possible. She gave out, gave away her own payout, but she did not mean to give away the payout that would go to her sons. And so that's obvious. Because the need for money is what pressured her. Whereas if she forgoes to her husband the rights of the ketubah, then she's foregoing everything, including the rights of the of their sons to collect, because she's forgiving it from her own goodwill, and therefore uh, she's she, she's happy to uh, give away the eventual rights of the sons. So those two cases uh, he, he thinks are obvious. But, the original question that you asked is act, was actually about 
that I'm still not sure Rava says if she's selling do we assume that selling doesn't matter to whom selling to her husband is the same as selling to someone else and it's because of financial pressure so she's selling as little as possible so the sons will still collect or is it more similar because you're selling it to her husband it's similar to foregoing to her husband after all when she sells it to her husband it's in effect saying that there is no ketubah because the husband doesn't have to pay himself um, should he have to pay out he just there won't be any payout so it's much more similar to the in, in, in its effect in foregoing even though in one she's getting some money and one she's not getting any money so that was his question. Bata, his question to himself, he still wasn't sure about that case. Bata de hadar pashta. But after he asked that question, he thought more about it. And he gave an answer. In fact, if she's selling it, it doesn't matter to who, selling it to her husband is the same as selling the rights to collect the ketubah to someone else because she's only going to sell it because of financial pressure. And if it's financial pressure, she's going to give up her own rights, but she wants to give up as little as possible. So she wants, she means to retain the rights of her sons to eventually get a payout of the ketubah. It was a really interesting sugya in the way that uh, you see Rava's development. At first, he didn't think of the difference between mocheret and um, mocheret and mochelet, and then his, that's explained to him. And he thinks more about it. This is great. I got these two cases. I'm still not sure about that one. He thinks about it a little more. And then he comes to a conclusion. So, you know, sometimes when something seems a puzzle at first, but you uh, keep thinking about it, and eventually we, you can get an answer. All right. Mativ Rav Idi Bar Avin. However, Rav Idi Bar Avin is going to challenge Rava's conclusion that someone who, because of financial pressure, gives up their ketubah, um, uh, nevertheless retains the right for the sons to collect it. He's going to challenge this from a Mishnah in Yevamot that says, Meta en yoshin shelzev, en yoshin shelzev, uh, uh, yoshin ketubata. In a case back in Yevamot where a woman is married, her husband goes away on a trip, doesn't come back, and she suspect that she suspects that he's dead with some evidence that he that says he is dead. The Talmud Bavli there explained that story about a case where one witness says he's dead. Based on that, she goes and gets remarried. Unfortunately, uh, the husband, the first husband, is actually alive and comes back one day, and now she's stuck because she the marriage to the second one is no good. She was married to the first, but she can't go with the first because she, in the meantime, she was with the second guy, and she gets all kinds of penalties. She loses her kitubah from both of them, and this clause says that the inheritors from her children from the first husband and her children, those who would inherit her from the second, um, do not uh, inherit the amount of the ketubah. Now over there we analyze this. What are you talking about? What ketubah? It already said in the Mishnah that she loses her right to collect the ketubah. So if she doesn't get a ketubah, then no one's going to be inheriting the money of her ketubah. Papa explained it's talking about this clause where she dies first, so she never collected a ketubah. And normally, the sons would have a right to collect the ketubah after that. And this clause in the Mishnah is saying that in this case, she married the first guy, married the second guy, and now she has to leave both. 
the sons from both marriages also do not inherit. Now we ask, here's the question, In this case, why did she marry the second guy, even though there was some possibility that the first husband was still alive? I mean, she had some evidence that he wasn't, but there was always, you know, uh, uh, more than a, um, uh, more than some percent a possibility that he was alive because of her desire. She didn't want to be alone. She doesn't want to be an aguna for the rest of her life. She wants to have companionship. So there was pressure. So since there was pressure on her, that's why she married the second guy with the knowledge that because she does that, she may lose the amount of the ketubah should the first husband come back. But why don't we say, yeah, okay, fine. She was willing to risk her own ketubah, but it was only under pressure, and therefore she did not have in mind that her sons should lose out. But yet her sons do lose out. So you see, when the woman does something under pressure, the sons lose out, and therefore, in Rava's case also, when she does something under pressure, like selling her ketubah, um, even though she did so as a, out of pressure, we should say that she gives, she also foregoes or sells the right to her, for her sons, uh, and their sons also would lose out. That's the question. And the answer is, Hatam No, you can't compare the cases. That is a knas, it's a penalty. Uh, it's in, uh, the, uh, over there, as we explained, uh, the, the rabbis came and said, that she had a responsibility to check into the matter further. She should have hired someone and to, uh, uh, to go and check, an inspector to go and check to make sure that the husband is really dead. So she did not, and obviously because he came back, and uh, therefore this is a penalty to make sure that woman will not uh, go ahead and jump to a second marriage without first checking that the first, that the first husband is dead. So therefore she, the reason why she doesn't get a ketubah and why the sons don't get a ketubah is not because she decided she wants to forego it or sell it. She never decided anything. She was just, you know, doing what was, what, what she needed to do. And uh, it's the rabbis that impose the penalty on her. So therefore, these are completely different cases and one cannot make, uh, make, um, uh, uh, bring a challenge to Rava. Okay, if we remember over there, this idea that it's a knas that we have on her was from the uh, anonymous stamaim of the Tamud Bavli, whereas the Amoraim themselves never call it a knas. Uh, so it's interesting here that this answer is from the stama de Gemara, whereas Rav Idi Barabin probably did not think it was a knas, but rather is built into the 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 um, uh, the nature of the case that she is um, kind of semi-quasi married to two people and so she's in the state that's unstable and has to get out of it and so this is simply a consequence not a penalty uh, so Ravidi Barabin I presume would not have agreed to this answer and would have stuck with his question um, uh, okay but uh, we can appreciate that much better uh, knowing the sugyot over there. All right, now, Yativ Ravin Bar Hanina Kameh de Rav Chista, Yativ Kamar Mishmeh de Rabi El Azar. So Rabin Bar Hanina was sitting before Rav Chista, meaning Rav Chista was his teacher, and he was sitting and he was saying, sometimes a student would recite something to his teacher in the name of Rabi El Azar, uh, who was a great master. If a woman 
foregoes the right of her ketubah, not only does she forego the right to collect the ketubah at the end of the marriage, even during the marriage she foregoes her right to sustenance. And that's what the husband said, oh, then I don't have to feed you anymore. So Amar Le'ilav de Kamat Li Mishmeh de Gabrad Abad of says, if not that you had quoted this in the name of a great man, Rabbi Al-Azhar, I would have argued with you and said, this is an example of someone who rewards evil for good. Um, evil shall not depart from his house. This is not a good, you, know, you shouldn't, uh, if someone does something good to you, you shouldn't give back evil, right? Someone who does that will just have evil come upon him. And this would be the application here is that she did a kind deed to the husband to say, hey, you know what? You don't have to pay me the, the ketubah when the, uh, when the marriage ends, right? She, she wants to show how confident she is that he's not going to just divorce her for nothing. And so she says, okay, you don't have to pay me the ketubah. And what does he do in return? He says, oh, great. So now I'm not responsible for the ketubah. I'm not feeding you anymore. That's not a very nice thing to do. If she does that, she, she should give her a gift and give her more, right? Not less. So he says, this would have been a very strange thing and I would have rejected it. But you quote it from Rabbi Al-Azhar, so I have to accept it. So all these three sages were sitting together. Um, and uh, and someone happened to come along who was engaged. He, he did Kiddushin and his Arusa died. And he wanted to know Am I responsible to pay for her burial? Yes, you are responsible. Either go pay for her burial or pay out her ketubah. You sign the ketubah uh, uh, and so that so you have to. Now, usually the ketubah is not fully in effect until the marriage, until nisuin. Um, but nevertheless said you have to pay for the burial. Amalehu tanena. Rav objected to this, right? They were sitting, uh, the, the, these two rabbis were sitting, Rav Nachman and uh, Ula and Abimi Bar Pape. So they answered, maybe they were Betin, and they answered, yes, you have to, but Rav who was sitting by them, uh, said, I object uh, to your ruling. And he brings a Braita from which we're going to learn that he should not have to bury her. Tanena. If a case you have a, 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 a wife who does only, they only did Kiddushin, not Nisuin. In that case, he does not observe the laws of Aninut if she dies. And if he's a Kohen, he may not become Tameh. Usually, if one's wife, a Kohen is allowed to become Tameh for her. But it's only Arusa, so no. Also, she, she does not observe the laws of Aninut and Avelut, and she does not become Tameh to him. Now, if, even if she's a Bat Kohen, there's no prohibition for a Bat Kohen to become Tameh. The point here is that she does not have to deal with his burial. Meta if she dies, he does not inherit because they're not married yet. He does not inherit her, her money. But if he dies first, she does collect the ketubah. That's the Braita. Now, we analyze 
Hamitahi and Laketuba. The only reason why um, he does not inherit her is because he dies first. But if she dies first, then she does not get a Ketuba. Why does she not uh, collect her Ketuba? Um, how come he does not have to pay out the kituba if she dies first? My tama, Amar Rav Yehoshaya, Shen Ani Kore Ba Lich She Tinasi Leacher Titelima Shekatub Lichi. Because we cannot fulfill the provision that's written in the kituba that says when you, if you marry someone else, then you can take the amount of the kituba, what's ever written here. Uh, so the usual cases where they're married and then they get divorced or he dies, uh, then she decides uh, to marry someone else. When she marries someone else, then she collects the amount of the ketubah. So that's the only time he has to pay. If she dies first, well, she's not going and marrying anybody else after that. So therefore, he is not obligated to give a ketubah payout. Since he's not obligated to give a ketubah payout, he is also not obligated to bury her. Right? This is because uh, they said either bury or give her a ketubah. Well, uh, this according to uh, Rav Chia's understanding, he proves that he does not have to. All right. When Rabin uh, came from Eretz Yisrael, he quoted the name of Rashakish that says, a woman who's an Arusa and dies, she does not receive a Ketubah. And implied in that also is that she would not be, uh, he would not have to pay for a burial. And so Ravin came and thought, I'm giving a brick chidush that Eshakish said. Uh, but Abaye says, Go and uh, take this, your goods that you brought and throw them on the thorns, right? You thought you'd bring us something great. You can just throw it away. We know it already because Rav Hoshaya already interpreted and explained this rule in Bavel. Now, even though we had it from the name of Rav Chia, uh, it must be that Rav Hoshaya uh, also said a similar uh, derivation. And so we knew that already. But I guess it's always good to have confirmation. All right, now, next part of the Mishnah said, is that um, in the Ketubah, the man agrees that any, any girls that they have will be sustained even if uh, he, when he dies and the inheritance goes to his sons, the inheritance will have to provide for his young, uh, the, the young girls from that marriage. Uh, okay. Rav, and we saw that's even so much that even if uh, the, the, they will take away from the son's inheritance, the girls get first. Okay, Rav Taneh, Adetilakhan Legubrin. Even if there won't be enough for the boys to eat, they have to go beg and the daughters um, get food. Okay, so now in what conditions, until when, does the uh, inheritance have to pay for these girls? So Rav understood, uh, Rav ha- Rav's version of the Mishnah and of this clause says, you will have to pay for the girls until they are taken to men, meaning un- uh, until they get married. Uh, so no matter whenever they get married, 
uh, they will be taken. We'll see, does that mean uh, from Kiddushin or from the time of Nisuin? Until you grow up and they become a Bogedet, meaning that the daughters get fed until they're 12 and a half, and then they're adults, then they're on their own. Um, you can see how these two words will can get mixed up. Gever and Beger is the same letters, was switched around. Gever means a man, Beger means an adult woman. So, which is it? Now, the Rav Afagav de Bagad, Belevi Afagav de Insiv. Hold on. Are you telling me that according to Rav, the only time that the inheritance stops uh, feeding the girls is when she gets married? And even if she is an adult, the inheritance still has to? That's not, no one thinks that. And according to Levi, it's only when she, when she grows up. But even if she gets married as a, as a minor, the inheritance still has to pay for her? Nobody thinks that, all right? I mean, this is a, everyone agrees across the board that either becoming 12 and a half or nisuin, that would be sufficient for the inheritors to say, we're not paying for your food anymore. So what is this machloket? If she grew up and didn't get married, or if she got married um, when she's still a minor, under 12, still a katana, everyone agrees that she stops getting food. The question is, if she is still, she still didn't grow up, she's still under 12 and a half, but she only did kiddushin and not nisuin. So that Rav would say that once she becomes narusa, the inheritance stops because she was taken by a man. And taken means no matter how, kiddushin or nisuin, uh, that's it. She's out, uh, she, she was uh um, claimed by a man, and therefore the inheritors can do not have to feed her anymore. Whereas according to Levi, says no, uh, if she, uh, she's not married yet, and she's not an adult yet, so um, until the marriage, they still have to pay. And Levi also says so in his teaching that says, that the inheritance will have to pay for her, until they become grown women and the time of comes for their marriage, not enough to have kiddushin. So we just uh, clarify, tarte, do you need both? Because it says, you know, ve, ela o tibagran o itmezim nehon leit naseba. According to Levi, either they become an adult or they are fully married, then the inheritance of their father can stop paying for their sustenance. Okay, this machloket regarding a minor who does who does kiddushin, does the inheritance continue to pay for her or not, is a machloket between Rav and Levi. It's also machloket between two tanaim. Ketanae. Ad matai habat nizonet. Ad shete'ares. Until when does a daughter get fed? Until she does kiddushin. And now, not, not after. Mishum Rabbi Elazar amru ad shetibager. But Rabbi Elazar said, no, until she becomes an adult, which sounds like even if she did kiddushin, but she's still a minor, the inheritance does still, does still have to pay for her. So Tanakama would be like Rav, and uh, um, Rabbi Elazar would be like Levi. Taned Rav Yosef. Ad Rav Yosef had a formulation of this until she becomes 
havaya, until she becomes with a man, the inheritance still has to pay for her. But that's not clear. What does that mean? Does Rav Yosef mean until she is with a man, just with Kiddushin? Or do you need full Nisuin? We're not sure what Rav Yosef meant in the Braita that he quoted. Amar le Rav Chistad Rav Yosef. Mishem Yalach Mine de Rav Yehuda. Rav Chistad Rav Yosef was student of Rav Yehuda. So Rav Chistad said, Have you ever heard Rav Yehuda say anything about the following? Arusa yesh la mezonot or en la mezonot. Once someone becomes an Arusa, um, and uh, let's say she, you know, she, her father died, and the inheritance uh, uh, controlled by her brothers is feeding her. So once she becomes an Arusa, does she continue to get inheritance from her brothers, or now she's Arusa? She does not. She does not any longer. Uh, did you hear anything about her from our teacher, Rav Yehuda? And Rav says, "No, I never heard a tradition from him." But logically, it makes sense that she would not have get inheritance from her brothers anymore, sustenance from her brothers. Because her husband, once they do kiddushin, he does not want her her, her, her he does not want his fiance to be demeaned and have to go and ask for food from her brothers. Rather, he'll take care of her. So therefore, the brothers don't have to anymore. And Rav Chistah says, well, you never heard a tradition of Rav Yudah said explicitly, so for just using logical reasoning, I would reason the other way, that she should continue to be sustained by her brothers. Because the husband is not sure if he wants to marry her. There's always a chance, as only did Kiddushin, so it's, it's, it's a major commitment, but it could always be that from between between the two, uh, between the Kiddushin and Nisuin, he'll find some reason why he does not want to marry her, something wrong, and so he doesn't want to pay for her sustenance for nothing if they're not going to end up being married. So he doesn't, he's not really totally committed until the marriage. Okay, Vikadamre, there's another version of this conversation that just flips them around, but the same thing, just opposite um, opinions. In this one, Rav Yosef said, um, I never heard a tradition. But logically, she should get sustenance. Since they're not yet married and he's not sure, he's not going to throw away money and sustain her when they might, may, the marriage may not, might not happen. Well, if you never heard about it, I think logically it makes sense that she should no longer get inheritance from her brothers, because once they do Kiddushin, the husband does not want her to be demeaned, and he'll take care of her, and therefore the brothers no longer have to. All right, we're going to end with five questions uh, related to this, and to the mnemonic device to remember who asked the question, Siman de Gabre, Shak Zaraf, we're going to see the questions are attributed to Rav Sheshat, Rav Resh Lakish, Rabbi Elazar Rava, and Rav Papa, that's the Peh. And the subjects of the questions are going to be about Me'ana, Vibama, Shenia, Arusa, Va'anusa. Okay, so memorize that, and then you can memorize the following questions. Ba'omine Rav Sheshat, that's the first one, about Mi'un. Me'ma'enet, yesh la mezonot, o en la mezonot. Let's say you have a girl who, whose father died. So she's going to be sustained at that point from her brother. 
uh, who inherited. Now the brother marries her off to a man. That's his right to do to marry her off midrabanan, but she has a right to refuse while she's still young. So as a ketana, uh, they're married for a few months. She refuses, and what that does, it annuls the original, goes retroactively, um, uh, undoes the orig- original kiddushin. So now, what's her status? Can she go back to the way she was and continue to be sustained? from her brothers, or now that she was married, she left her brothers, she left the household, and she does not go back. That's a good question. Amalud of Sheshat, Tini Tuhad of Sheshat, I actually have an answer. Look at this Braita. It's a machloket. Almana bebet abiha grusha bebet abiha vishumet yavam bebet abiha yeshla mezonot. Of all these three cases, one when one goes back to their father's house, they do continue to get sustenance. If you have uh, an almana, she explains that's talking about uh, a woman who only did kiddushin and then the husband died and she goes back to her father's house. So she, almana she, bibet, she's in her father's house. So that means that she never left her father's house um, uh, because they only did kiddushin, not nisuin. Or if she did kiddushin and then she was divorced and so now she's still in her father's house. Or she, her husband died, her fiancé died, and now she is uh, connected to a Yavam, and she's waiting for the Yavam to come and do Yibum, and she's still in her father's house. So in all these cases, she never left her father's house, so she continues to be sustained by her brothers. We're talking, even though it says father's house, it's still it's talking about the case where a father, the, the father died, and the brothers are sustaining her from the inheritance. That's Tanakama. If she's still in her father's house, she gets sustained. And when she leaves her father's house, and lamezonot, then she doesn't. Now it seems to be the same thing. Aren't they saying the same thing? No, actually, the case of Mi'un, our question would be a difference between them. Tanakama would say that uh, this is equivalent to the other cases because she did mi'un and so the marriage is retroactively annulled. It's as if she was never married and so she's still in her father's house so she can continue to be sustained. Whereas Rabbi Yehuda, whose language gives a more blanket, uh, a, a more blanket statement, says if as long as she is not in her father's house, even for temporarily, and in this case, once she does, she gets married. Even though Sointa Rabbanan is conditional, she got she got married to this guy, so she's not in her father's house. So she loses her right to be sustained by her brothers. And even if she does mi'un after, no, still does not. Okay, so we actually Rav Shishad provided an answer for the first challenge. The next four, we're not going to have any answer. They're all going to end in teko. If um, a, a, man, a woman does yibum and they have a daughter, she has a daughter with the, with the yavam, uh, where, and then she dies first, will, the, will her daughter be sustained from the estate of the yavam uh, or not? What's the two sides? Now, um, because the yavam, he never wanted 
initially to marry the Yevama, he was just put in the situation because of the tragic death of his, death of his brother without children. And so therefore, since he didn't ask for this, this marriage in the first place, he doesn't have to pay the Ketubah from his own money, but rather the estate of the first husband pays her Ketubah. So since he doesn't have to pay for Ketubah, he also, his, his own estate, should not have to pay for the sustenance of the of that daughter. So therefore she does not get it. Letla. Or on the other hand, the rabbis may have instituted that if the first husband, the one who died, does not have any property and does not uh, is not able to pay a ketubah, the rabbi said that the second husband has to pay from his own money the amount of the ketubah. Because again, the second husband, we don't want him to treat her uh, 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 not well and divorce her for no reason. So since the rabbis do say that he would have to pay for the ketubah if needed, then maybe that extends also to the right of the daughter to be sustained. Take all, we leave that question standing. Third question, Shiniyah here is referring to adayot, the Torah gives, lists a whole bunch of people that a, a man is not allowed to marry as incest, but it doesn't list a bunch of other ones, like a person with his grandmother. So the rabbis say, even though Torah doesn't say it, the rabbis prohibit it. So if someone violates that and goes ahead and marries someone who he's prohibited to as a shiniyah, uh, well, this marriage is problematic. And because they did that, she does not get a ketubah. She cannot, the, the, the wife in that case, uh, does not get, collect the ketubah. Let's say they have a daughter, and then that wife dies. Uh, does that daughter collect mezonot or not? Uh, here's the two sides. Since she sinned by entering the marriage, she doesn't get a ketubah, so let la mezonet. So too, the clause in the, in the usual ketubah that a daughter will be sustained, she doesn't get either. Or, who's the one that sinned? It's the mother who entered into a marriage, prohibited marriage with someone who's, who she's related to. So the rabbis gave a penalty to her. But the daughter that they have, she didn't do anything wrong. She was just born. So she doesn't, she doesn't deserve a penalty. She deserves to get sustenance. Um, and so she should get it anyway. Take all, we leave that question standing. Let's finish the finish off all the questions. Bat Arusa Mezonot If uh, someone a uh, couple got engaged, they did Kiddushin, and then they have a child illegally before Nisuin. Um uh, so is uh, and then the she die, then the wife dies. Does the daughter get Mezonot or not? What's the two sides? Kevan de it la ketubah it la o diama kevan de la takinurabadan ketubah adjati suin let la take on. Since they did write the ketubah, because they write the ketubah sometime in between uh, after the kiddushin, so she has a physical, physical ketubah and it says in it that the daughter gets sustained, so this daughter should get sustained, or since the rabbis did not require the ketubah until the time of Nisuin, so that even if you wrote it before, but you don't need to write it until right before the marriage, and it doesn't fully kick in until the marriage, so then the daughter should not get. So that question is left standing. And the last one, If a man rapes a woman, and then he marries her, which is the Torah says, 
says he must marry her and if she wants and is never allowed to divorce her and they have a daughter and then she and then the wife dies uh does uh, and then and then the husband dies rather and uh, then the the estate goes to the whoever whoever inherits it the sons does the daughter get sustained or from the inheritance or not so let's see earlier says even though there's a payout the rapist has to give a payout to the father of the of the victim and that payout is instead of the kitubah payout uh, that's what Abanan said Rabbi Yosef Rabbi Yudah says even though he gives he gives that payout to the father of the bride nevertheless um, they, uh, when, if she dies or they, or they do get divorced, if she wants a divorce, he has to nevertheless pay another hundred because, um, even in this, even though he's not allowed to divorce her, still she is uh, deserving of, uh, of a ketubah so that he will treat her well. Even though he can't, he can't initiate a divorce, he could make her life miserable until she asks for a divorce. But if he knows he's going to have to pay a hundred, then he'll make sure to be a good upstanding husband, even though he started with rape, but he, since um, uh, they both agreed to be married, so she deserves a ketubah to make sure he'll be on his best behavior throughout the rest of the marriage. So since Abiyosebidibuda said that she gets a ketubah payment, so also her daughter, their daughter, would uh, be entitled to sustenance. So we're not asking the question according to Yosef Yudah, therefore sure yes. But Rabbanan say there that um, after the rape he has to pay this fine to the father and that fine is like kind of like paying the Kitubah up front. And then there's no Kitubah payout at the end. So according to that, if he, when he di- if and when he dies, does the daughter get sustained from the inheritance? Since there's no ketubah payout, so there's none. Also, you don't. He doesn't have to pay for that stipulation. That's usually in a ketubah to sustain the daughter. Or what's the usual reason for a ketubah? So that a man will not easily divorce his wife. Um, and but this guy, the, the rapist, he is not allowed to divorce his wife. But that's the only reason why there's no ketubah payout to the wife. But everything else that's in the ketubah that does still apply would still apply. And uh, the sustenance to the daughter, the reason for that doesn't doesn't change uh, just because he can't divorce her. And therefore, that responsibility does uh, still fall upon him and his inheritance to sustain her. So even though she doesn't get a ketubah, even though she doesn't get a ketubah payout, pay, pay does that mean there's no ketubah at all? All the stipulations, or that one is not relevant, but the other ones are relevant and should still have to pay. Take all, and so this again is left standing. Uh, imagine that these challenges were presented to students, and you see that they mention the, quickly the arguments on both sides, and the students would have like a debating team debating each other, um, and so it's left left standing, so that every generation of students and and learners can re-engage uh, in these debates. Baruch Adonai Amen v'Amen.